Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Expel Inc. third quarter 2023 earnings call. At this time, all participants have been placed on a listen-only mode, and we will open the floor for your questions and comments after the presentation. It is now my pleasure to turn the floor over to your host, John Nesbitt, IMS Investor Relations. Sir, the floor is yours. Good morning, and welcome to our conference call to discuss Expel's financial results for the third quarter of 2023. On the call today, Ryan Pape, Expel's President and Chief Executive Officer, and Barry Wood, Expel's Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, will provide an overview of the business operations and review of the company's financial results. Immediately after prepared comments, we'll take questions from our call participants. A transcript of this call will be available on the company's website after the call. I'll take a moment to read the safe harbor statement. During the course of this call, we'll make certain forward-looking statements regarding Expel Inc. and its business, which may include, but are not limited to, anticipated use of proceeds from capital transactions, expansion into new markets, and execution of the company's growth strategy. Such statements are based on the current expectations and assumptions, which are subject to known and unknown risk factors and uncertainties that could cause actual results to materially differ from those expressed in these statements. Some of these factors are discussed in detail in our most recent Form 10-K, including under the Item 1A risk factors filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Expel undertakes no obligation to publicly update or revise any forward-looking statement, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Okay, with that, I'm now turn the call over to Ryan. Go ahead, Ryan. Thank you, John, and good morning, everyone, and welcome from me also to our third quarter 2023 conference call. We had another strong quarter, overall revenue growing 14.4% to $102.7 million. This was in line with our expectations for revenue and what we discussed on our Q2 call. Also, as expected, China did have a nice sequential increase from Q2. It was still a 7% decline from Q3 2022, which impacted the quarter-over-quarter growth rate. And our non-China revenue growth in the quarter was 17.4%. Our U.S. region grew 14.5% compared to Q3 2022 to 59 million. Sequentially, this was essentially flat to Q2, which itself was a record quarter. Our U.S. business is now 57% of our overall revenue, so its performance serves as a significant driver of our overall results. U.S. new car sales continue to be solid despite the higher interest rate environment. We did see a slight reduction in the rate of growth in our aftermarket channel uh, this quarter uh, versus Q2, but overall, you know, Q3 2022 was the peak quarter for last year. And as you know, we watched the front lines of our market and customers very closely, and our customers tell us their business has been relatively consistent this summer, uh, but probably off the fever pace we saw in Q3 of 2022. I know that each of you covers, uh, many of you cover our business and the industry closely, so I want to take the opportunity to step back for a minute and discuss our channel strategy and how our multiple channels, in our view, complement each other and enable us to reach an expanding customer base. So as many of you know, pay protection film started almost exclusively in the aftermarket, and a consumer had to first find out about PPF, and then he would take his or her car into an independently owned shop to have the product applied. So this consumer still represents a large portion of the channel and of the buyer. Um, enthusiast buyers dominate this channel, and we estimate an enthusiast buyer to be around 15% of all new car buyers. Over time, as dealerships saw their customers purchase PPF in the aftermarket, 
dealerships began to move to adopt PPF. And their reason for adoption is simple, to generate gross profit. And many dealerships outsource the installation to the aftermarket because they don't want to have to hire their own internal staff. And as you know, uh, hiring internal staff in a dealership or a service center model can be challenging. Consumers demand product excellence, and to be effective, dealerships need a technical skill set for installation, yet they may only need a small team of installers or, in some, some cases, just one person. This reality can make it challenging for dealerships to recruit, train, and staff around time off, absences, and other things. So some dealerships choose to build internal teams and are able to do this themselves successfully, and they'll continue to do it. At the same time, there are other businesses that have no retail presence whatsoever who provide PPF services to dealerships. In our case, you're not going to find these customers on our dealer locator or likely even know they exist. We refer to these customers as, as dealership services. We've acquired several of them over time for paint protection film uh, and, and window tint, and so we're in that business ourselves. As you analyze our industry, it's important to understand that scaling to meet high penetration rates in dealerships is something few of the aftermarket installers are interested in, as, it, as this scaling requires substantially more human capital and a constant reinvestment of cash flow into the business. Likewise, you don't really see dealership groups universally scale installation internally across their enterprise in a consistent way. It's typically locally decided, and it's, it's very much a patchwork in its implementation. So even still, as dealerships continue to sell more PPF and, and ultimately create more awareness for PPF, on the whole, this is not disruptive to the aftermarket, in our view, for several reasons. One, the aftermarket participates in this work by doing work for dealerships in some cases, as I mentioned a minute ago. And then enthusiast buyers, who are still the largest part of this channel, who were the original PPF buyers, will often opt out of the dealership channel and take their new car directly into the aftermarket, seeking a more bespoke installation from someone they trust. And then third, obviously, the PPF market overall has continued to grow. So net-net, the dealership's offering is increasing attach rates by finding people that would never take their car into the aftermarket. And as dealerships continue to adopt PPF, we've seen interest from the OEMs begin to develop. And again, this interest is profit-motivated. Installing PPF at or near the point of manufacture or delivery is attractive because the vehicles are located together for efficiency. The downside is you need a substantial physical footprint and human, uh, human capacity to do a considerable number of vehicles as installation is still done manually without any currently available automated installation processes. So there's a limit ultimately to the scale that can be achieved in that environment. Additionally, OEM programs are susceptible to being usurped by dealerships who would prefer to internalize their programs and not select the manufacturer's option for the product because they believe they can generate more profit and have more control. And it's important to note again that the original and predominant enthusiast buyer may always prefer their local installer whom they know and trust and whose quality and workmanship they prefer. Yet, like dealerships, OEMs still have the ability to reach consumers not captured by any other element of the channel and those that don't know about the product, which is helping to grow consumer awareness overall. So when you look at it in totality, we see the mix of channel activities as healthy 
and mandatory to the development of the PPF market. And we don't see direct aggregate cannibalization of the business from one segment to another. As an example, even as you have seen more dealership participation in PPF over the past few years, the aftermarket is bigger than it's ever been for Expel. In Expel, we have various internal measures, including our DAP software, for estimating our vehicle attach rates for our products and the related revenue mix. In particular, we can look at this attach rate as it relates to traditional paint protection, which would be the, the front end of a vehicle or the full, full car of a vehicle, separate from, say, uh, mini kits or wear and tear applications that would be additional. So as an example, in the case of Rivian, with whom we have a factory program, our U.S. Expel aftermarket attach rates are higher than many other makes. In this case, the OEM program is incremental and is helping to grow attach rates overall. It's our view that initial buyers of a new model or a new brand, like the recent uh, development of the EV manufacturers, are more likely to skew towards enthusiasts. So we would expect attachment rates to be higher initially, but over time, if there's more mass market appeal, particularly if the price point is more accessible, the buyer profile will change to be more similar with the overall industry dynamics. So put simply, the incremental buyer of this type is less likely to be an enthusiast. This means over time, we might expect to see attach rates go down on a new vehicle as they expand production and their mass market appeal. So today, as an example, our U.S. attach rate into Rivian is substantially higher than Tesla, for example, even excluding our OEM operation. And this is likely due to the early presence of the enthusiast buyer dominating the channel for a new vehicle. That said, as an example, our U.S. Porsche attach rate is substantially higher and actually multiples higher. Yet again, because a large percentage of that core buyer are enthusiasts and because Porsche has a dealer network that exists and is very effective at selling the product. Other enthusiast-dominated and higher average price point makes follow similar trends. Overall, it will take a range of approaches to continue to expand the market of paint protection film beyond the 15% enthusiasts that I mentioned earlier and into the mainstream. We estimate 25% of consumers will never buy the product, and they probably wouldn't take it for free because the pride of ownership of their vehicle is just not there. These, those, those consumers simply don't, don't care. But that leaves 50 to 60% of the new car buyer, in our estimation, that are open to the product if they learn about it, if they can ex access it easily before, during, or after the sale process, and if we can meet them with an appropriate price point to provide good value. To do that, we'll take a variety of sales channels and marketing activities to reach this group over time. So I know that's a lot to digest on the U.S. on our U.S. go-to-market, but to summarize, our channel strategy uniquely positions us to be there wherever the demand takes us and is a key part of our ability to drive sustained growth. So turning back to our quarterly results, most of our other regions had solid quarters led by European region, which posted 43.5% growth over the prior year quarter, and our Latin America region, which grew 58.4% over the prior year quarter. Canada's growth rate was impacted a bit by FX using Q3 2022 exchange rates. Canada revenue would have grown approximately 10% as the Canadian dollar weakened substantially in that time. And as I mentioned previously, China's Q3 performance was consistent with our expectations in that we saw sequential growth over Q2 of this year, but still a 7% decline over Q3 2022, 
which was the highest quarter for last year. The Q4 forecast we received from our distribution in China is positive, and assuming we can ship all the product as forecast, would indicate our Q4 revenue from China would be one of our highest quarters in recent years. Of course, things can change, and they have in the past, but we're optimistic that this will be a good quarter for China. I also want to update you that we remain on track to have our initial team in country at the end of the year as we assess a variety of aspects on our overall go-to-market in China. And, of course, one of our goals as we, as we work on this project is to eliminate the lumpiness of our China business in terms of sell-in versus sell-through. And as we're doing with China, we're also establishing our first facility in India, uh, which will be open at the beginning of the year, and looking at a more direct approach for that market as it develops and as it's in its infancy. As we've discussed in the past, our U.S. business does have some seasonality in Q1, which is our lowest quarter, Q2 and Q3 trade-off being our highest quarters, and then we typically see a drop-off in Q4. Given that and our expectations for China, as I mentioned earlier, assuming we can deliver on the forecast, we expect Q4 revenue to be in the 98 uh, to $100 million range, which would put our annual revenue growth rate toward the lower end of the 20 to 25% range we've discussed this year. On margin, our gross margin for the quarter finished at 40.4%, which is a bit lower than our year-to-date run rate. We did have around a million dollars of one-time adjustments in inventory for the quarter. And as we've moved off our supply chain concerns we've had coming into the year and in years prior, and we've improved the manufacturing throughput, we have remnants and offcuts and other material that is more commercially challenging to process that no longer needs to be retained as a safety stock. And so that's part of the adjustment that you see here. Our processes in, there, processes in this area will continue to improve and already has. So perhaps some of that adjustment is probably out of period. And if you normalize for that, our gross margin would have been a little less choppy from quarter to quarter this year. Uh, but I certainly don't want to take away uh, from the big picture where our improving gross margin profile has been terrific. So nothing's changed in terms of our outlook related to the opportunities for that gross margin expansion. We still expect to close the year at or near 42% gross margin and still expect our gross margin profile to continue to expand in 2024 and then beyond. In other business updates, we closed on two acquisitions in the fourth quarter of the combined uh, purchase price of around $13 million. One was a Canadian-based installation chain of six locations uh, that came to market. The other was a European-based uh, business uh, in installing product for two OEMs at a small scale. Both of these will nicely complement our go-to-market strategy uh, that we've discussed, and these should add around $11 million in full-year uh, 2024 revenue. We also have two acquisitions to close in the remainder of the year, one in the U.S., and one in Australia to supplement our direct model in that market that started last year with the acquisition of our distributor. Our acquisition pipeline remains healthy, and we expect to deploy all of our excess cash uh, into this strategy, and we still think that this is the best use for our cash. The acquisition strategy focused on three core targets. First, we're looking to expand our distribution to other key markets globally where acquiring our distributors might make sense. Our Australia acquisition from last year that I mentioned a second ago is a great example of this where we have 3x the revenue we had prior to the acquisition, uh, highest margin profile uh, in the system, and we can directly execute on all facets of the go-to-market in the country. 
As we've discussed before, the closer we are to the end customer, the more successful we are in that particular market as product awareness propagates. Secondly, we're looking into the channel for things like dealership services, where we can invest in a part of the market that we don't think is well served, to tie into my remarks earlier. And finally, we'll always look at adjacent product or service lines to complement our current portfolio as a possible acquisition target. One example of an adjacent market is colored films. We get asked a lot about this. Today, you'll see vehicle wraps used for marketing purposes and for color change. Historically, that market is driven by vinyl films. And now over the past few years, you've seen the presence of more TPU-based colored films, where, where TPU is what paint protection films made of. Um, and this is obviously then more similar in its construction to paint protection film. There are probably a half dozen to a dozen TPU-based color products on the market today, and then dozen or two dozen or more sort of cast vinyl products, which have been the traditional mainstay of that business. Wrapping an entire vehicle with colored film, be it vinyl or TPU, has some of the same challenges as a PPF installation, given the current manual application process. It's a bit more difficult to install than PPF in some cases, because you may want to disassemble part of the vehicle to ensure all painted surfaces are covered so you don't have any gaps uh, or seams in coverage. However, given the cost, quality, and difficulty of full car installation, including the lack of a reliable automated installation capability and the need for repairability of what's installed in the fleet, it's unlikely, in our opinion, we'll see films replace paint uh, in mass anytime soon, if ever. It's more likely they'll continue to be used as they are now for bespoke colors not offered through a manufacturing process, for things like contrast roofs, for graphics and marketing, and then for select vehicle parts that are painted offline today and integrated into a final build. Many of our aftermarket installers came to paint protection film business from the traditional colored wrap business because they found the PPF business more attractive and a larger potential customer base. So we've had a wait and see approach to this market relative to our overall priorities, and its future with us, even though it's probably one of the next most adjacent markets in terms of product. In that context, should we decide to participate in it, the colored wrap business should be seen as something that can expand the TAM of Expo, not something that threatens to reduce it. Across all our product lines, our suppliers are very important to us, and we've developed an extended base of raw materials and converting suppliers, in particular for our paint protection film business over the years. Even as we've diversified that manufacturing using the asset light model and, and outsourced manufacturing model that we've used since inception, we've had a strong and longstanding 15-year relationship with Entertech. Earlier this year, it was announced that PPG had formed a joint venture with Entertech around colored film products Entertech had developed over a period of many years. We welcome the PPF joint venture with Entertech, and there are many possible opportunities for collaboration with PPG. We're actively discussing ways in which we might do that with their senior leadership. Next, let me turn to our leadership team here and provide a brief update. As many of you know, uh, Matt Moreau has decided to retire uh, from the business after serving as our senior vice president of sales and product. He joined the company in 2015 after we acquired his business in Canada and has held positions of increasing responsibility ever since. He will be, he will be missed. We wish him all the best. 
Also excited about two additions recently. Tony Remus has joined us as our VP of Revenue and have commercial revenue and strategy responsibility, uh, including our partnerships. And Tony has a wealth of automotive industry experience, including time running a, a top 50 dealership group, and then later in automotive venture capital. So he's a great addition to the team. Um, and finally, we brought on Kim Steiner as our Vice President of People and Culture. And we have nearly 1,000 employees now and growing as we operate on the diverse business model. It's a critical role. Really excited to have her on board. And our culture centers around doing what's best for the customer with a no tomorrow attitude. And Kim will be integral in helping drive that even further across the organization. We're also working on a number of internal changes to reflect our organization, both around key operating functions, but even as importantly, around key regions, Asia, as we mentioned earlier, and Middle East and India going forward to ensure that we've got leadership in the region and that we have a sufficiently decentralized decision-making process to, to remain the agile company that we have been and need to be. Finally, we just attended the annual SEMA show, which is the largest aftermarket uh, automotive event of its kind and one of the largest trade shows in existence. And I'm really proud of our amazing display there, which you may have seen on social media through the Expel House, which showcased all of our products in an innovative way. Uh, I know our presence there was universally well received. We've got a lot of other great marketing initiatives going into 2024, including additional sponsorships and targeted marketing programs to drive more of that non-enthusiast car buyer in the, to, to the market for paint protection film, as I discussed earlier. And then additionally, we have a new global platform launching next year, a global web platform launching next year with enhanced e-commerce for selling car, car care products to increase the number of touch points we have with our customers over the lifetime ownership of, of their vehicle. Before turning it over to Barry, I just want to take note, obviously, there's been quite a bit of external noise and conjecture during the quarter. Um, this noise has been built on a great deal of speculation. We're on track for a strong year and remain focused on providing outstanding service to our customers. And I've never been more optimistic about the long-term opportunity for our business. You know, Expel, we are a strong and industry-leading business, and our strength is based first on having the best team in the business, and then on the fact that we have a very diverse business, diverse by geography, by customers, by channels, and by product lines, and an intense focus on executing the go-to-market strategy. So with that, we'll turn it over to Barry. Thanks, Ryan, and, and good morning, everyone. Uh, just a little bit more color on our revenue. If you look at the product lines, combined paint protection film and cut bank revenue grew 8.4% in the quarter and was up sequentially a little under 4%. Our window film product line revenue grew 21.9% quarter over quarter to $18.8 which represented 18.3% of our revenue. And this was the second highest quarter for the window film product line in our history, coming off a record quarter in Q2. Revenue for the Vision product line, which included the total window film, which is included in total window film, grew 50% to $2.7 million. And this represented approximately 14% of total window film revenue and 2.6% of overall revenue. And sequentially, this was up approximately 12% over our previous high in Q2. Our OEM business also had a nice quarter with revenue growing a little under 62% versus Q3 
2022 to 3.9 million. And this was down sequentially uh, a little bit as production stops in August for most of our European OEMs for vacation. So this sequential decline was normal and expected. Our fusion ceramic coating product revenue, which is included in our other revenue line, grew 35% for the quarter to 1.5 million and represented 1.5% of total revenue for the quarter. Our total installation revenue combining product and service grew 34.2% in the quarter and represented 17.2% of total revenue. And on a year-to-date basis, total revenue grew 18.4%. Our Q3 SG&A expense grew 29.5% to $23.9 million and represented 23.3% of total revenue. And included in our Q3 SG&A was approximately $0.6 million of costs related to one-time executive relocation and legal fees related to uh, acquisitions that we discussed earlier. We also incurred approximately $0.5 million in one-time costs related to some research and development around some new product development. If you normalize for that, SG&A would have grown approximately 25% for the quarter, representing approximately 22% of total revenue. EBITDA for the quarter grew 4.1% to $19.7 million, reflecting an EBITDA margin of 19.2%. And if you normalize for the items I mentioned previously, EBITDA would have grown 16.7%, and EBITDA margin would have been 21.5%. Net income for the quarter grew 2.5% to 13.7 million, reflecting net income margin of 13.3%. And again, normalizing for those items that I mentioned, net income would have grown 16.9%, and net income margin would have been 15.2%. EPS finished at 49 cents per share for the quarter, and normalized EPS finished at 56 cents per share. On a year-to-date basis, EBITDA grew 23.4% to 59.2 million, and then income grew 23.6% to 40.8 million. We did have an issue during the quarter where one of our suppliers began experiencing some abnormal quality issues, and this we start seeing this in late Q2, early Q3, and they were unable to pinpoint the issue or really know when it was going to be resolved. And one thing that Ryan has been very clear about with our team is that we should never run out of product for our customers. If we were to be out of stock on something that our aftermarket customers need, it would really be devastating for them because most of them operate on a just-in-time inventory basis. And because of this, we do everything we can to not let stockouts happen. So when we saw these quality issues and not really having any visibility into when they would be resolved, we had to increase our orders with alternate suppliers to ensure we were able to meet demand later in the quarter and Q4. Ultimately, the issue ended up getting resolved relatively quickly, which was good, without any customer-facing impact. But by that time, we had, all, we had more raw materials in the pipeline. Consequently, we ended the quarter with higher inventory than planned. Our days on hand were flat to Q2, but we'll see an increase in days on hand in Q4, and we should be back to normal in Q1 as the inventory sells through. Even with that, our cash convergence cycle did improve slightly in the quarter. Cash flow from ops for the quarter was $11.1 million. We had a bit of an anomaly on our cash flow reporting for the quarter related to our acquisitions that we closed subsequent to the quarter end. We had put approximately $7.4 million USD in escrow in advance of the closing. 
these closings. This amount sits in our prepaid expense on our balance sheet and accordingly is reflected in our operating cash flows. And this will flip to investing in Q4 when we book the acquisition. So absent this anomaly, operating cash flows would have been approximately 18.5. And if you compare that sequentially to Q2, it was slightly down due to the inventory we added related to the to the quality issue. Even with that, our cash, uh, you know, we're we're in really good shape from our cash perspective. And we did pay off line of credit during the quarter, and we expect to be able to generate enough cash to execute on our immediate acquisition plans. And of course, this will always depend on deal size, and we're certainly not opposed to some modest leverage where appropriate. And generally, we're still seeing deal multiples in the 4 to 6x, 6x range. So from a capital allocation perspective, these deals are the right thing to do and remain solid value adds for us. So another good quarter for us, and we look forward to closing out the year strong. With that, operator, we'll, we'll now open a call up for questions. Certainly. Everyone at this time will be conducting a question and answer session. If you have any questions or comments, please press star 1 on your phone at this time. We do ask that while posing your question, please pick up your handset if you're listening on speakerphone to provide optimum sound quality. Once again, if you have any questions or comments, please press star 1 on your phone. Your first question is coming from Steve Dyer from Craig Hallam. Your line is live. Uh, thanks. Good morning. Um, just, I guess, first on the inventory, do you anticipate any more inventory write-downs? And then, I guess, even backing that out in the quarter, gross margin was a a touch lighter um, than, than, than I think I would have expected. Um, anything else kind of to call out there in the quarter in terms of uh, sort of things that caught you by surprise in the gross margin line? Uh, no, Steve, I think, you know, we don't, we don't expect any more adjustments like that. I mean, obviously over a longer period of time, there's always things that happen, but sort of nothing planned. Um, you know, in the quarter, you've got, um, you know, China mix, you've got a little FX, um, you've got, you know, uh, lower labor utilization with uh, some of the OEM uh, August shutdowns and things like that. So nothing of consequence to point out, probably just a few incremental pieces like that. Okay. And then your gross margin guidance for Q4 um, implies a, a pretty strong quarter, even with, uh, you know, a little bit lower revenue and, and the China mix, et cetera. Um, Kind of help me help me understand kind of what sort of gives you that continued confidence that gross margins will really be pushing that 42% uh, number. Well, I mean, we we knew going into the year, looking at it on a full year basis, you know, what our expectations were, and we we really kind of running hot on that um, to start the year, and we've we've had um, we've had planned what what we expected in terms of a strong a Q4 for China all year. You know, we've talked about that we expected the year to be to be back end loaded. Um, so, you know, that's that's what our modeling continues to suggest. And then, you know, obviously revenue mix, currency, these things will will matter for the fourth quarter like they did for the third. But, you know, in aggregate, the whole year's been relatively consistent aside from say, you know, a Q Q2 where we were really really running hot on gross margin, you know, pushing above that 42. Yeah. Um, a couple more questions, I guess, just on the quarter. Um, I, I guess I've not heard you call out one-time R&D expense for new product development before. 
Can you give any more details sort of what that is? Is that product still in development? Um, any color there? Yeah, we've, Steve, we've built um, over the past five years, you know, a substantial internal R&D team, uh, R&D quality and, and adjacent functions, both by people and then investment in, a, in equipment. Uh, but we, we also utilize third parties for certain projects that either we don't have the internal expertise for or that we're trying to move faster on. Um, so some of that happens, and it's not really noteworthy based on the timing of the expense and, and uh, when it occurs. In this case, it just kind of happened to hit uh, in this quarter with a slightly larger amount alongside these other sort of one-time expenses, so we called it out. But it really reflect, reflects sort of the continuing cadence of things we're doing, not a one-off, looking at, you know, how do we make our existing products better uh, in, the, in the markets we're in? And then as we, as we look at the uh, adjacencies, um, you know, where else might we want to go? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it out to any uh, specific area we're focused on. Uh, I think we just really call it out due to the, the timing of how it presented. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then I guess as you look forward to next year, I know you only guide one quarter out, but you've, you know, you've typically kind of been running in that 20 plus percent range for a long time. Um, you know, that maybe that's aggressive in a year that it feels like we're going into a recession, et cetera. But I guess any, any interest in taking a big picture uh, swipe at, at how you're thinking about next year? Well, I mean, I agree with you. You know, we've had, you know, the, the, the macro question, and I guess we really had that coming into 2024, too, if you, if you picture yourself at this time last year, um, or we had it coming into 2023, rather. And, you know, this year, I think, by all accounts for everybody, probably ended up stronger than was thought in November of 2022. So I think, you know, with, with that caveat in mind, you know, if we were to see kind of the, the, the tempo that, that we're in now continue, you know, I think we would be looking in a, in a 2024 environment at kind of a 15 to 20% sort of uh, organic growth rate. That's kind of how we see it. Um, you know, that then subject to change from sort of the inorganic acquisition components. And then obviously it, to the downside, if the you know, recession risk or, or the uh, auto market loses steam from the pace it's been on, you know, that would, that would potentially challenge that to the downside. Um, but I think, you know, we, we, we see enough opportunity and we see angles for organic growth into the future, um, you know, to give us kind of that sustained organic growth rate, you know, are we going to hit uh, 20% compounded organically year over year? That might be, that might be a little, a little tough as you get to larger numbers, but I think if you could get to 15 to 15 plus percent, you know, that, that would be good in this environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then lastly, I don't necessarily want to ask, ask you to comment on somebody else's business, but you touched on the PPG Introtech uh, joint venture. <clears throat> There's been some chatter just around, you know, their ability or, or, pro, or you know, progress in embedding I guess PPF or a, a PPF-like alternative into the paint. Um, we've done quite a bit of work around that and have not seen anything remotely that would suggest that that's happening. But um, give you a, an opportunity, I guess, to comment on it um, as you wish. Sure. Yeah. No, we watch these things closely. I can tell you that you know there's no known technology that puts film inside paint 
um, that we're aware of, and this is not something that our our partners at PPG are doing. And so I, I think that you know what you're seeing on a on a broader basis is can you use films um, to augment or replace paint in in limited circumstances? You know that's what's been kind of developing at a at a at a slow pace probably for the past 10 years. Um, but that's a a far cry from some theoretical technology to put film inside paint, and that uh, that doesn't exist. Okay, got it. Uh, thanks, guys. I'll pass it along. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Your next question is coming from Jeff Van Sinderen from B. Riley. Your line is live. Uh, good morning, everyone. So maybe we could just touch on your OEM business a little bit more. Um, Maybe you can kind of give us your thoughts on how you see that business developing. Um, I think you you said you mentioned you mentioned that you actually acquired a, a small um, OEM related business. If there's any more detail, you can give us on that, and and just kind of overall speak to, to your outlook for the OEM business. Sure, I think you know uh, Jeff, we we try to give a lot more color to how we how we view the channel and uh, our remarks this time, just because we do see all of these pieces is complementary, um, and you know, on an individual unit basis, yeah, the, you could cannibalize one unit from one channel to the other, but net, 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 we see this as a way to grow awareness and reach beyond the traditional enthusiast buyer that has dominated our business. So from that end, I, I see um, more opportunity with the OEMs. Um, you know, it's not gonna come to dominate the business, but it certainly has the ability to grow on a percent of total revenue basis, and it's really complementary to everything else we're doing. And you know, a thing to understand about any product that's installed, uh, even if it's installed centralized in an OEM environment, you know, it still has to be you still have to have a, a, the ability to service and repair it in the in the real world. And so that's that's another area where you have the OEM business intersect the the need for the aftermarket channel. So it's something we're gonna we're gonna continue to pursue in in view of um, trying to create more awareness and expand the buyer for paint protection film, and it likely will grow on a percent of revenue basis, but it, it's not going to grow to dominate uh, to dominate our revenue. It's just going to be one piece of the overall pie. Okay. And then um, maybe if you could give us any more color that you know around what you're seeing in China, and and perhaps speak to, I guess how you're evolving the China business a little more understanding and color around that. And then I think you also mentioned India, so maybe quick thought on approach to, to India. Yeah, Jeff, I think if you if you look at you know all the lessons we've learned in our business over the years is that, you know, we know that we do exceptionally well when we get as close to the customer as possible. And that's uh, led us to participate in the channel in a variety of ways, uh, but including, you know, acquiring uh, uh, distributors in various countries and setting up in country. And, you know, for us, China was really always the exception to say, you know, that's the caveat to that strategy. And I think where we are now is saying, well, you know, we need to have a much uh, more open mind in terms of the best uh, go-to-market for China uh, to, to uh, you know, support the distribution there and really set it up on an even stronger platform for growth. And so the, the first thing we're doing is, you know, getting our team assembled. Uh, we've been working very closely with our, our uh, master distributor in China, 
and really put together a plan that says, you know, how do we make this whole thing better? And, you know, I mentioned in the prepared remarks about sort of the lumpiness of sell-through and, and sell-in. Well, you know, maybe we can do things around the inventory planning and inventory and country to make that easier for everybody as one example. Um, you know, the other, the other side is we've just, we've got to get much closer to the business. The, the you know, kind of COVID uh, two and a half years, you know, you had much of the world not present in China from the outside and the market there continues to do its thing. And so we've got to be increasingly present and increasingly close to it. So I think, you know, we're very active on that. I, I would expect, you know, to see what we're doing there evolve uh, next year um, for, for the better based on all the feedback we, we get and, the, and um, whatever modifications to the go-to-market. And I guess similarly to India, uh, India is a market um, that we have very little revenue from today, but we see the great, great prospects for development as the as the country development uh, country continues to develop and uh, you know per capita incomes grow and the number of people at higher incomes continues to grow and I think you know one of our lessons candidly from China uh, applied into India is that we need to be on the ground and we need to be present um, not to say we have to there's no room for local distribution and there's no there's no room for a bifurcated go-to-market strategy all those things are on the table but we need to be there and be present at the very beginning. And so that's what you're seeing us do with India. We're uh, relocating, uh, relocating a leader from Texas to, to India to lead that. Um, and I think, you know, you see that uh, with the lessons we've had from distribution around the world. And then also in particular lessons learned in China where you had a market that was rapidly developing. So I think you can kind of look at those in a similar way. Okay, thanks for that. That's helpful. And then just one more quick one. Are there any more extraordinary items that you anticipate over the next couple of quarters that might impact the P&L? No, well, I, I would say that we anticipate no, um, but everything that we're doing uh, is with the long-term uh, view of the company in mind. So, you know, to the extent our acquisition cadence continues or increases or accelerated, you know, you are going to see uh, things like legal expenses, um, if the if the product development and the, the the research and development activities we have could be further accelerated by outside resources like what you saw in the second half of this year, you know we're going to make those decisions, um, even if we feel it quarter to quarter. Uh, but you know all that said, you know there's there's nothing uh, nothing on the horizon to identify at this point. But we're always going to we're always going to side on the uh, long term view of the company versus the short term in making those decisions. Okay, fair enough. Uh, thanks for taking my questions. I'll take the rest off the line. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. That concludes the Q&A portion of the call. I will now hand the conference back to management for closing remarks. Please go ahead. I'd like to thank everyone for, uh, for participating today uh, and really thank our entire team. We've had, uh, we've had an amazing quarter. Uh, we've seen huge development in our team and people really going deep to, to further the initiatives we have, including folks taking on a lot more responsibility, and then those that we've got relocating to other parts of the world to uh, help drive the Expel vision uh, elsewhere. So couldn't do it without them. Thank you very much, and look forward to speaking to everyone soon.